0: I have always hated dentists. At six years old, I was actually put in a straitjacket because laughing gas wasn't working, and the dental hygienist, they couldn't hold me down as I'm screaming my head off. At 16, I actually had ten cavities in one checkup. It was so bad, I actually had to have multiple times coming into the dentist just to make sure they got every single one of them now, when it came to my teeth, I thought my biggest problem was the dentists themselves. That all changed one day when I came back about three years ago from uh, vacation, and I was with a dentist who I begrudgingly trusted. I at least know he wasn't purposefully causing pain to me. But when this man looked at my teeth, he didn't see ten cavities, he didn't even see a root canal this time. He said, Jonathan, your teeth are so bad, your gums are so diseased, we actually need to use laser therapy and burn most of it off. I had my own Scared Straight episode playing in my head, realizing that my fundamental and biggest problem was not with the dentists themselves, but with me. You're probably wondering at this point why John 4 and what John 4 has to do with my teeth today. Because. We have just seen Jesus meet someone for the first time, and this woman has her cards stacked against her. She's clearly someone we've seen from the text of an ill-reputed past, and we'll see that played out later. She's also a Samaritan, which the common Israelite and Jesus himself would have actually been, there would have been tension there. Yet even with all of this, this woman is convinced by misunderstanding after misunderstanding of what's really wrong with her situation and what she really is her biggest problem. But it's actually through this dialogue of Jesus and the woman that we ourselves are brought in and we should be asking ourselves what this means for us. Because when we read John 4 and we read this interaction between the woman and Jesus, we should have this question Plain in our mind, what truly is my biggest problem today? Again, when you read this text, and the question you should be asking yourself as we go through it is, what truly is my biggest problem today? Because the Apostle John in his gospel has just left off exactly where we were last week Uh, jesus in verses one look at it again verses one and two he sees that he and john the baptist are rising in infamy particularly with the religious leadership and how popular they have becoming because of the people they have been baptizing and making disciples and jesus is not one to create competition between teachers especially ones that are within his circle or john the baptist so look at verse three and it tells us jesus he left Judea to go to Galilee. But there's just one problem with this trek he was going to make. He has to actually go through the land of Samaria. And if we know our Old Testament history, well, if you've read the Old Testament, you'd actually know that Israel, Israel and Samaria, they were distant cousins. More than that, actually, Samaria was a part of the Northern Kingdom before it was conquered by Assyria in 722 B.C., Samaria was actually the capital of the northern kingdom before it was conquered. But after they are conquered, the Assyrians begin to bring in foreigners into the land, and the Israelites that would remain there would begin to intermarry with these foreigners, and they would begin to mix religious practices so then they don't have a faithful understanding of what the Old Testament was telling them, and that there began to actually be racial tension between Israelites and Samaritans. This was so bad that the common view of an Israelite back then, for a Samaritan, as one commentator would say, is that they were childrens of political rebels and racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by unacceptable practices. They were essentially racist toward the Samaritans. And this is the tension Jesus is coming into walking through this country. This is the conflict Jesus is bringing himself into. But Jesus doesn't allow his ministry outreach to be determined by bigotry or prejudice. Instead, look at the text, and what does it tell us? He went into the land of Samaria. He came to the town of Sychar. He sits at a well, and he's worn out by his journey because although he is the son of God, he is still fully made flesh. He is the son of man, and Jesus is sitting alone because his disciples have gone to get food, he's alone at this well, and it is high noon. That is what the sixth hour would be. But now he sees a woman coming. There's something off about this situation that we might miss, because the common practice of that time was for women to come together and gather water. It was also, as I said, this is noontime. This would be when the sun is at its apex. It's when the sun is its most fierce. So this woman is coming at the worst possible time by herself there is some reason for why she is isolating herself from this community and jesus breaks the silence and begins to bring us into the point of this whole sermon with this conversation simply by asking for a glass of water and You can you, you read this text, and you can immediately hear the woman's bemusement, her confusion in verse 9, because look at verse 9, what she says. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because John even makes it blatantly clear, if we're missing the point of what's going on here, right afterwards. He says that Jews do not associate with Samaritans in any way. In fact, religious practices... Uh, rabbinic law would make this questionable whether jesus even interacting with this woman right now would make him ceremonially unclean but jesus Jesus sees no reason not to speak with this woman because you can even see the apostle john's literary craftsmanship here because remember who was he talking to in john chapter 3 he was talking to nicodemus but who was nicodemus but he was a man He was a religious leader and he was a faithful israelite but now jesus is talking to this person who is a woman she is someone of ill repute and she is a samaritan there is no one jesus will avoid speaking to but do you genuinely believe that to be true today for yourself Jesus didn't actually spend the bulk of his public ministry talking to the public intellectuals. He didn't talk his time with the political up-and-comings, with the elites of society. Jesus actually spent most of his time with the moral degenerates, with those at the bottom rung of society, with the down-and-outs, with the misfits, with those that have made a mess of their life. In fact, Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, he even gives us his own ministry statement, saying in Luke chapter 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Does your personal outreach today look a little like Jesus and how he views ministry and evangelism? Because who is the troubled person in your life? Who is the person you've left on the moral outskirts of society? Who is the person that you cannot imagine bringing into your own life and share the gospel, to show the gospel and bring them into your life? Because to be honest, we all love to see people come to church. We all love to see people come to an authentic relationship with Christ and truly understand what the gospel is about problem is we tend to like it when they have a spouse, when they have two kids, when they have a nice salaried position, when they have a house, a car, and the worst vice they have in their life is spending a little too much time on social media. That's someone that I can disciple. That's, that's, an, easy, that's an easy time to, for me to use. I can have coffee with them, but then... The drunk comes into my life, then the prostitute, then the paranoid schizophrenic, then the person that can't hold a job for more than a week, then the person that's been in and out of prison, and then I start to pray to God, what are you doing to me right now? Why are you bringing this person into my life? Is that how Jesus treats his own ministry? Is that what we see Jesus doing here in our passage? Because Jesus never avoided anyone to speak with. In fact," He was able to speak to both the CEOs and the convicts. He is both able to talk to Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. He never created one homogenous group of followers and disciples. In fact, he is offering that same hope to every single one of us today, that no matter what your interests are, no matter what your socioeconomic status are, no matter what your failings or mistakes have been in life, that this is the promise of the gospel, is that he brings this truth and that we can be shown the same Savior no matter where we are in life today. Because as I said, it is offered to both the CEOs and the convicts. We can experience God's grace, but we can also be able to live that truth out where we bring this same gospel to people that are radically and fundamentally in different situations in life than ourselves, because that is the exact thing we see our Savior doing with the Samaritan woman. Because this is just the first point of our passage. This is just, we see the fact that Jesus is willing to speak with the woman. But look at the passage again, and we see our second point, Jesus is willing to help the woman. Because we begin to see in verses 10 and following, Jesus will say one thing. There's this motif of misunderstanding going on. Jesus will tell the woman one thing. The woman will misunderstand his words or interpret his words in another way. You can uh, see it immediately with Jesus's words in verse 11 and 12 when he says uh, that he's offering her living water. But that expression there, it actually is intentionally ambiguous. Because if you were just hearing that phrase, uh, expression, you would have just thought that Jesus is talking about a spring that is bringing a source of water to her. That's actually the the way that that is the way that this woman interprets Jesus' words in verses 11 and 12. That she, there's almost a little bit of rebuke here, saying, do you think you're better than our father Jacob? He made this well. He gave us this well. And you're telling us that there's a source of water that is better than this, that we don't know about this. He was essentially telling Jesus that he's a charlatan to put up or show up here. How does Jesus respond to her in verses 13 and 14? Look for yourself. And what does Jesus say? Everyone who drinks of this water... Will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life this living water Jesus is offering her is not another source of hydration. This is not a natural need that she is talking about. He is telling her that this living water is going to give you your deepest desires and your inner satisfaction that you have been looking for, that you will be able to have renewed worship and fellowship with the God that you have claimed to worship. Because actually, if you listen to Jesus's words, and if a the person that read the Old Testament heard Jesus' words here, they would hear echoes of the prophet Isaiah, who promised that God's people in the latter days, they would drink from wells of salvation, they would no longer th- hunger or thirst, that God's spirit would actually be poured out in their hearts, and they would exchange empty formalism with a real, true, and authentic experiential knowledge of God himself. And that's what this woman is being offered by Christ, saying that your need for water is not the issue here. I'm offering you this relationship with the God of the universe, and that's what this living water is about. How does the woman respond to Jesus, though? Look at verse 15. What does she say to him? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus has just given her the greatest gift of God, this renewed relationship, this this is no longer empty formalism, but she can actually have an authentic relationship with this God of the universe, no matter what her background has been. And she's actually thinking too small of what this gift of God, what God is offering her here, that this is the same trap we can all fall into. It's the very thing that C.S. Lewis has described once, and you may have heard this quote that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joys offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, that we are far too easily pleased. This is when Jesus begins to really probe at the situation, and we come back to that question, what is her biggest problem, really? in the text. Because Jesus simply asks a very innocent question, or not even a question, he's stating, go get your husband and come back. The woman says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds to her in a very loving rebuke. You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true you don't need to understand cultural background you don't need to understand ancient near eastern culture to understand the shock of what jesus has just said because we in contemporary culture have judged ernest hemingway for having four wives and that this woman has been in five marriages and the one she is with the common law situation is actually never acceptable in rabbinic law in fact rabbinic law would have said that there it was even shameful to be in three failed marriages, and that this woman has made a mess of her life and she is now alone by herself. We are beginning to understand why it is that she's coming at this, the worst possible time, and yet now she has just been publicly confronted by this anonymous stranger she has met for the first time. Imagine for a moment that people saw you for who you really were all the shame you hold in your heart, all the habits that you keep to your health, all these character traits that you wish you could hide from the world. Because for many of us, it's not that we hide from the Samaritan woman, it's not that we are unwilling to speak with the Samaritan woman. I think for many of us today, it's feel that we are on the same moral playing field as this woman, that we have our own facade, We have our own front that we put on, we have our own mask that we wear, and we hope to God that no one actually finds out how we really think and act. That even the poet Paul Dunbar once said that we wear the mask that grins and lies, it hides our cheeks and shades our eyes, this debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile. But now put yourself in this moment and imagine that mask or facade that we hold on to. It's not your friends that are publicly speaking to you about, but it's the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who has just come up to you and he has confronted you. How are you going to respond then? because we see what the woman does. And you may actually feel tempted to do the same exact thing this woman is doing in the past. She turns it into the floor of Presbytery. She makes this into a theological question. Jesus, you're getting a little too close to my heart and what is really bothering me, so uh, what's your opinion about where we should worship? Uh, We we worship on Mount Gerizim. You worship in Jerusalem. What's your opinion about that? (laughs) One uh, commentator, he says, it's really easy for us to talk about theology rather than to talk about the issues that are personally distressing to our heart. Because think of uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we know that all uh, all Scripture is profitable for us, and we know it's profitable for teaching. But then we get a little uncomfortable when we realize that right after it rebukes us, it instructs us, and it trains us in righteousness. And yet, even in this, Jesus is telling us. He is speaking to this woman's evasiveness here. And he's coming alongside her. And he's showing her that there's still a misunderstanding, that she's missing the point here. Because look at verses 21 and 23, and if you were to summarize what Jesus is essentially getting here, he's telling her, this question you're asking is completely obsolete and missing the point. The true worshipers of God are not asking about the location in these latter days, because something radical is about to happen and is happening right now, where the essential nature of worship of God is not your geographic location, but the nature of how you are going to actually worship him. In fact, Jesus, in verse 24, summarizes what he says here in saying that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And those aren't two separate characteristics of our worship needs to be in spirit and it also needs to be in truth that they're actually interlinked together and the idea that Jesus is telling her here is that true worship of God is empowered through the new life given through the Holy Spirit on the basis of what Christ is about to accomplish at the cross because he is the embodiment of God's truth. And that those that are trusting in that message, that is the essential characteristic of what Jesus is saying is true worship here. This woman has walked into a conversation that she was not expecting and probably was not wanting to have. She was thinking her biggest problem when she showed up that day was, I just need a glass of water. (laughs) I am really thirsty today. What's our biggest problem today? What is the issue that you have held onto your heart whether that's emotional, relational, financial, medical, whatever you want to put, because our list can go on and on, and we can spend the whole sermon just talking about that. We have our own perceived issues in life. We have our own understandings of the world, and we have our own misunderstandings of life. And we, just like this woman, can misunderstand exactly what really is the biggest problem. And we can handle it, just like this woman, by trying to avoid the situation, trying to ostracize ourselves from community, trying to ignore it, trying to cut people out of our lives who try to speak to us about it. But think about that question we have in our mind. What's my biggest problem today? And actually, Jesus is giving us something more than just asking us a question. That Jesus in this passage is giving us a response and an answer to that question. Not only are we to answer what is my biggest problem today, but where am I going to find the solution to that problem? Because Jesus' response and the answer to that question today is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus alone satisfies all of our deepest problems. That the whole entire thrust of this conversation he's having with this woman and the point we need to walk away um, is that through his death and resurrection, Jesus has satisfied all of our deepest longings and problems. Because whether we are the religious elites, whether we are like the Samaritan woman, no matter where you find yourself today, that Jesus, through the gospel, through what the gospel is offering us, it it actually is tearing off that facade, that mask that we hold on to so much. And even if we feel like we are outcasts of society, even though we feel rejected, that we can turn to this savior, Jesus Christ, in faith. And when we are united to God, God is not looking at these moral failures that ostracized us from community. He's not looking at our sin. He's looking at us, and he's saying, that is my child. In fact, he's looking at us, and he sees the Savior, Jesus Christ, and all that he has accomplished at the cross. With a crescendo like that, and with all that Christ has done, what more could we say even about this passage? Because really, we have seen that the Jesus is willing to speak with the woman. We see that Jesus is willing to help this woman. But finally, the last point of our passage today is Jesus is willing to send out this woman. Because the woman understands the implications of what this idea of worship Jesus is speaking about. In verse 25, she, she picks up on the fact that he's talking about someone just coming that's actually going to be fulfilling this. The Samaritans, they had their own version of the Pentateuch, and that was the only religious text they held on to. But they were also holding on to the promise of Deuteronomy 34, saying that there has not arisen a prophet like Moses who knew God face to face, and that they were awaiting a promise, messianic figure that would come and show them, reveal to them what true nature of worship actually is. And then Jesus drops the bomb with his simple statement, I who speak to you am he. And with this short interaction, this woman's life has been changed forever in everything she does. Because when the disciples return, they do see the woman for a moment, but she is already on her way out, and she's already back to the very town she has isolated herself from. But actually look at the text again, we might miss this for a moment, but what is the thing she has left behind in verse 28? What is the thing she's held on to for all of her life, the thing that is most important at that moment for her? The woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That the woman's priorities before was to just get a drink of water. The woman's priorities were to quench her physical thirst. The woman's priorities up until that point was to keep herself away from this community that was bringing guilt and shame on her. And immediately immediately when she meets this Christ, this Savior, the very community she has kept herself from is the very community she is running back to and telling them about Jesus. That is the exact picture of what a heart transformed by the gospel looks like. Where you are unable to keep this gospel to yourself, you are unable to not share it with others. Because in light of everything Christ has done for us in the gospel, if you consider yourself a faithful follower, we can go out with that same hope today. And think of all that water jar represented to the woman back then she's abandoning it all and returning to that community to share with them who Jesus really is. That's what the gospel does to us. It tears off our mask. It tears off this facade. It brings us into this relationship with the God of the universe. It unites us to Christ. And the Biggest priorities, the biggest issues of our life is not about what's in it for me and what is the deepest satisfaction I need to care about, but what is the thing, how is it that I can have other people say the same Savior who has satisfied my deepest longings and desires? That we ourselves can go into these communities that we have isolated ourselves from. Because the exalted Savior Jesus, He has broken down every barrier we see in our lives and every excuse for why we don't bring these truths. That you are no longer hiding behind a mask of whatever mistakes or failures that you hold on to, but you are actually hiding behind the Savior who has done all of this on your behalf. What's your biggest problem today? What's the water jar you have been holding on to? What's the mistakes and failures you are unwilling to let go? The transformation of this woman's life is the same transformation that the gospel offers to each and every one of us today, that Jesus is the fount of living water who satisfies our deepest longings and problems of life. He brings us complete forgiveness, he brings us into fellowship with God, and the gospel message is offered to each and every one of us, whether we consider ourselves in a situation like Nicodemus or like this Samaritan woman. Because Jesus alone is the Savior who can answer all of your deepest problems. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promise of the gospel. We thank you for the great truths that we bring from it, the great hope that we can find that whether we have held on to these mistakes, these failures, whatever has been holding us down, whatever we think is truly our biggest issue of life, that we see what you have actually offered us is so much more, that you are actually bringing and satisfying the deepest desires of our hearts. And that in response to this gospel, we cannot keep this truth to ourselves, but we have to, like this Samaritan woman, go out and share it with everyone we know. I pray for all of us that we might be able to see this truth played out in our lives more and more, and we thank you for the wonderful truth that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and we pray this, that if there's anyone questioning this, that they may be able to talk to someone and see this Savior for themselves. We pray this in his name. Amen.